The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 21, our subject once again this morning is heaven. And I know that as we speak of heaven, we must have in the forefront of our minds the one who makes heaven real for us, the only one who makes heaven possible. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he is the one who is responsible for heaven. He is the one who takes us there. He's the one who said that he is coming again to receive us unto himself. And the truth of that has not changed. He is still, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life, so that there is no other way that any person is ever going to go to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Now, heaven is the place where the Father lives. And that's why it makes it such a grand subject that God Almighty is there. And we trust the promise that God has given that when we leave this life, that we're going home to be with our God in heaven. Heaven can never actually be considered without thinking about the great sacrifice that Christ made for us. He took our sins on him in order to make us holy so that we could enter into that place. Uh, God's heaven is a perfect place. He intends to keep it that way. And so the only ones that will enter into heaven are those who have had their sins removed from them. They are perfect and able to come into the presence of God. And so you can see that to speak of heaven is also to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't separate ourselves from the gospel of Christ and talk about heaven at the same time. Now, I'd like for us to turn our attention to these text verses, and if you will allow me for a moment, I want to mention some of the things that we've already discussed in our previous messages. In verse number 1, the Apostle John, who received the revelation of heaven, wrote, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And from that verse we learn that there is something that's going to happen to the present earth and to the universe that contains it, the universe and the earth that we have now. And uh, John doesn't tell us what is going to happen to it, uh, to it uh, but there are other scriptures in the Bible that do tell us that there is a great cataclysm that is coming in which the earth will be engulfed in fire and it will be consumed and will be completely gone. This earth will go out of existence. And the Bible says not only the earth on which we live, but also the entire universe is going to pass away. The Bible says that it's all going to explode with a great noise. All the stars and the galaxies will disappear and the scripture says they will be folded up and put away like a man puts away his clothing. And the illusion is that God's going to be through with the world that we have now and the universe that we have now. And that uh, as easily as he created it, he can destroy it as the word of God says, as easily as a man just folds up his clothes and lays them aside over a chair. And then in this first verse, it also says that there is going to be a new heaven. That is, there's going to be a new universe. 
And that new heaven refers to another creation, a new vast expanse that God will create of galaxies and stars. And within that new universe is going to be a new earth. And both of those will be encompassed within the boundless heaven of God. And so that at that time, everything is going to be heaven. In verse number 2, John saw a new city. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the holy city. This is the New Jerusalem. This is the capital of heaven. Now, we can well imagine that when God creates a new earth, that there will be many cities on the new earth. I don't know if God's going to create uh, or actually make it uh, other planets available for people to live on. Maybe he's going to do that too. And if he does decide to do that, at least we know this, that this new Jerusalem will be the capital city of all of that. This is the place where God's throne is, and this is the main place of God's administration of his heavenly government. Now, the new earth is mentioned specifically rather than other planets, now, the Bible doesn't say anything about us living on other planets, but the new earth is spoken of specifically because this new earth is going to be a focus for us. And the reason that it is, is because it was on the earth where redemption was played out. It is on the earth where sin happened, where man fell, and then Jesus Christ came to redeem us from our sins. And this new earth is to show us what the world would be like if it's all perfect, if there is no more sin. When God recreates it, there is no more sin. And so the new earth is a focal point to give us an idea of what happens when God conquers all sin and we can live without it. It's a perfect world because God is perfect. But as glorious and great as it is to have a new earth that's replenished with all the wonderful things that God will put here, it pales in comparison to this new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, where God lives. Now, the new Jerusalem is dazzling in its beauty. No one has ever seen a city like this, and although later we are going to look at descriptions of it that are given in this chapter, there is no way that the human mind can actually conceive what this city is going to be like. When Paul was caught up into heaven, he said that he couldn't even tell us about it. He couldn't describe what he saw. The radiance of God's glory was there, and the human mind simply cannot understand those things. So later on, we are going to describe using the information that we have in this chapter. But we'll notice, as great as heaven is, and how much that is the hope of Christians, and that's what we look forward to, there is surprisingly little description that's given of heaven. Maybe it shouldn't be too surprising to us. Because the human mind simply cannot understand these things. Now John saw a new Jerusalem. It came down out of heaven. It descended until it was visible over the entire earth. And this new heaven is the place where God is going to live. It, it is a, it, where he lives. It is adorned as a, as a bride for a husband is what it says here. It's clean and white. It has a wedding garment that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that symbolizes that the new Jerusalem is also going to be the home of the bride of Christ, the church of God. And that is a wonderful thing for us to know that as we are members of Christ's body, that he has prepared this special place for us to live. The new Jerusalem is the home for God's church. Well, now we turn our attention to verse number 3, which reveals heaven's greatest attraction. 
Now the physical things, streets of gold and walls of jasper that we'll read about later, these are secondary to heaven's greatest attraction. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So we discussed, first of all, the cataclysm, and then it was the new creation. Thirdly, we talked about the new capital. And then fourthly, today, we want to talk about this wonderful aspect of heaven, the very best of all, and that is the companion of heaven. A great voice spoke out of heaven. Now, perhaps that's the voice of the archangel that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's an archangel that appears as Christ comes. He shouts out the return of Christ as God appears to take his people out of this world. He announces the return of Christ, the promise that Jesus made in John 14, verse number 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This could be the same angel that makes this blessed announcement in verse number 3. We could speculate that the angel is Gabriel, the one who announced the birth of Christ. We suppose also that it's Gabriel, Gabriel who's the one who blows that trumpet at the second coming of Christ. And perhaps we see the same angel right here announcing that heaven is now opened in order to receive the people of God that he brings home to live in that blessed place. Now in verse number 5, God said, I make all things new. And folks, this is certainly a new thing that God makes here because who could imagine that the holy God would ever allow any of us to live with him? How could we imagine that as high and holy as God is, that he would allow us to come into his personal presence in heaven when we are sinners and we deserve nothing but hell? Why would God allow us to come into heaven and dwell with him? At one time, God did come to dwell among us. Uh, We know that Christ came, and he came as a man, though, who was destined to die. In John chapter 1, Uh, A similar thing is stated to what we read here. It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's talking about the living Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and lived among us. That's the same wording that we see here in Revelation 21, verse 3, when it says that God will dwell with them. But this is a new thing, because this is not a temporary dwelling. Jesus came to this earth to live for a short time, to be with his people for a short time. Then he left and he went away to go to heaven. But when we see God later, we're never going to be apart from God. We won't have a temporary dwelling with him, but we will be with the Lord God forever. He will dwell with us forever. Death is conquered. There is no more death there. And so we will live with God forever. We never have separation from God in heaven. We'll see God forever in eternity. We will forever be in his presence. You know, sometimes as Christians, we don't feel very good about the presence of God. We have sin in our lives. Sometimes we can be uncomfortable thinking about that no matter where we turn, no matter where we are, that God is there, that God sees everything that we do. But in heaven, we'll never worry about that. There is no sin there. And so we will never want to be apart from God. Well, this is what I want us to think about for a few minutes today. To be in heaven is to be in the presence of God. 
How does that happen? How are we allowed to be in the presence of God? Well, let's push everything out of our minds for a few minutes this morning. And there is no thought that is high and holy as this. Nothing is more serious than this. How is it possible for sinful people, for mortals such as we are, to be in the presence of God? The first thought that comes to my mind is what Jesus said in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. And then we come to the pinnacle of the Beatitudes, in which Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. No one else has seen God. You and I have never seen God. There's not any person that you know that has ever seen God. The most virtuous person that has ever lived on this earth never saw God. And so there's something very different about these people that Jesus talks about and the ones we see in Revelation 21 verse 3. There's something that qualifies them to see God when no other shall see Him. Well, who are they? Well, it says that the pure in heart, Jesus said, the pure in heart are going to see Him. And I want you to think about that, that stipulation, are you pure in heart? Is it possible for you to see God? I want you to look into your own heart and ask that question, am I pure? Now, not am I mostly good. Not have I done some pretty good things. The question is, are you pure? Is your heart pure? Because that's the requirement that God has put on this. The requirement is that you be pure because only the pure will see God. A few weeks ago, I sat beside the bedside of a dying man. He knew that he wasn't long for this world. The time, time was closing in on him. He was very uneasy about his death. And so I asked him, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? Do you know for sure where you're going when you die? And he said, well, I hope that I'll go to heaven. That's not a surprising answer. We've learned that heaven is in the heart, that everybody has a hope of heaven. And so I had to ask him further, on what basis do you believe that you're going to be in heaven? Why do you have hope that you'll be in heaven? And he said, well, I've done some pretty good things in my life. I've been good to other people. I think God is going to count the good things that I did, and he will let me into heaven. Well, that's just a brief recounting of the conversation that we had, but this is really what most people think. Matthew 5, 8, though, tells us a much different story. Uh, people have a very much different idea about how you go to heaven as opposed to what Jesus said is the way that you go to heaven. So it makes you wonder sometimes, why are we always questioning this? Why are we debating about this? Who is going to be in heaven? Jesus made it explicitly clear to us. He said, only the pure in heart shall see God. Not, not, not those that did okay. Not those who did mostly good things and did more good things than they did bad things, which is a myth anyway. But not them, the pure in heart shall see God. Well, the other day I went to the pantry to get a piece of bread. I opened up the package and I noted there's, noticed there was one little spot of mold on one slice of bread. And you know what I did? I threw the whole loaf away. I wasn't going to eat that. That was polluted. 
There was, there was a spot on that. It went, the one little spot spoiled the loaf, and so I threw it away. Well, the pure in heart will see God. And if you can look into your own heart and you see one little spot, just one little piece of mold in your heart, you shall not see God. A couple of years ago, we watched the Way of the Master videos, and we learned some things about soul winning. And I remember there was a Jewish lady that was on one of those tapes, and she was asked about sin, and she said, I'm not a sinner. Well, she didn't understand very much about sin. She was much like the Jews that were in Jesus' day. They pretended they were pure in heart. But in the end, when it all came down to the end, they had to admit that even they were sinners. So what's the conclusion? They shall not see God, because only the pure in heart will see him. Now, we're starting to get a little bit worried, I would think, about right now, because we all know this, that if the pure in heart are going to see God, none of us are going to be able to see him. No one is pure in heart. So how will we see God? And how can this be true, what we read in Revelation 21 and what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8? The pure shall see God. How are we able to go to heaven to be with God? Who are these people that can meet such rigid requirements that enables them to see God? Well, there isn't really a secret to discover here. This thing has been out in the open for centuries because this is actually the message of the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what's been preached for thousands of years. The pure in heart are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The pure in heart are those who have been washed in the only cleansing agent that's tough enough to get out the stain of sin. These are people that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're clean and they're white. They are purified in the only way they can be purified. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood. Who are the people that John saw in heaven? Revelation 7, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, or John says, you know who they are, tell me who they are. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You know, that's a song we don't sing very much anymore either. We must be washed in the blood of the Lamb because the blood is our purity. And how do you receive that washing? You receive it by faith in Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And so the great benefit of the cleansing blood is this, that we are washed and we are pure. We are made pure by the blood of Christ. These are the ones that shall see God. Now, in your flesh... You cannot see God. Oh, by faith you can see Him. In your heart you know that He's real, but you can't see Him with your eyes. No one has ever seen God. The glory of God's presence would vaporize anyone who would dare look at it. At the burning bush, Moses talked with God, but he didn't see Him. 
Again, at Mount Sinai, he talked with God, but God had to hide him in the cleft of the rock, and all that Moses could see was the aura of God's glory as he passed by. He could not see God and live. Isaiah had a vision of God, and it terrified him so that he said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He thought that he would surely die, even though all that he had was a vision of God. It was too much for him. Moses had that very same fear. When he was called upon the mountain, the Bible says there was fear and trembling. He could not see God's face. But you see this wonderful verse here, Revelation 21, verse 3. Jesus said, the pure in heart shall see God. And God comes to dwell with them. And they will see him just as assuredly as the disciples saw Jesus. And folks, that is the most spectacular part of heaven. Mortal eyes will never be able to see it. Only immortality allows this. We shall see God. And we won't die when we see him because there is no death in heaven. There is no sin in heaven. And so that means there's nothing that enters there that has the smallest spot. Everyone has been made pure by faith in Christ. There is no other cleansing for sin. And if you want to know the big, big reason why there is no other way to heaven and why we can't say that all paths to heaven are equal ways and why we cannot say that other religions have ways to get to God, it's because Jesus very clearly says, and the Bible clearly says, there is no other way but Him because He's the only one that cleanses from sin. He's the only one who removes the penalty of the stain of sin. So you cannot see God without believing in Jesus Christ. That's the exclusivity of Christianity. It does not exist. It cannot coexist with any other religion. Not and be true. Only Jesus is the way to heaven. Only the pure in heart will see God. God will dwell with us. What does that mean to us? What, what does that mean for the people of God? Well, first of all, it means that heaven is a prepared place for fellowship. Heaven is the only place where we're fit to have contact with God. And to do that, we have to be different. We must be made new. And this is what God says. He makes all things new. We are regenerated. We're, we're born again. We become new creatures in Christ. There's only one step that separates you right now from seeing God, actually meeting God face to face. There's only one step that you need. Our limit as new creatures in Christ right now from seeing God is that we are encrusted in this mortal body. And this body is still sinful. That prevents us from seeing God. And so what must happen is that corruption must put on incorruption so God has made that promise to us. He promised that he would change our bodies. He'll make them fit for heaven so that the whole person, body and soul, can be in God's presence. And we make no mistake about this, that Moses was saved by the blood of Christ, just as you and I are. He was much holier in degree, I think, than you and I. But God chose him to be that great prophet. He stood out among all of the prophets. God spoke directly to Moses. He invited him to come up on the mountain. But Moses was not able to see the fullness of God's glory. As his children, we feel God's presence. As his children, we know his spirit is in us. As his children, we have peace and comfort that passes all understanding. But we can't see him. That's the great thing that we lack. We can't see him. The most important blessing, the greatest one of all, is the sight of God. And we cannot see him. 
He invites us to come into His presence with our prayers. And He says, boldly come before the throne of grace. And we do, but we cannot see Him. You know, I, I, love, to, I love to call my mother and speak with her. Uh, I love to hear her voice and thank God that she still recognizes my voice when I call. She has Alzheimer's, but she still recognizes me when I call. But that's not the same as seeing her. Teleconferencing, Skyping with her, that's not the same as being with her. Sometimes we Skype with our grandchildren in San Diego and we can see them, but that's not the same as holding one of them, putting them on our lap. The Scripture says we shall see God. That does not mean that we're going to hold a video conference with Him. It, does, it doesn't mean we're just going to have a vision of Him that appears in our mind. No, what we're talking about here is personal, intimate fellowship with Him. And although we are saved right now, we are missing that great blessing. We can't see Him. By faith, we know that He's in heaven. By faith, we know that He listens to us. By faith, we know that He loves and He cares for us. But friends, I want to tell you something. I'm looking for something better than faith. I want something better than faith. And the Bible says we have something better than faith. Our faith is going to end in sight. That's the great blessing. To see God, to actually see Him, we shall behold Him. Now the pure in heart shall see God. There's no other way to explain the problem that we have but the words of Scripture. It tells us who only, in 1 Timothy 6, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. That separation from God is going to end. We will approach God in a light that no one can now approach Him in. We will see God face to face in all of His glory. Isaiah never experienced that. He had a vision. Ezekiel had a vision. No one has come face to face with God. Heaven is a place specifically for face to face fellowship with God. We shall see God. And then what else is heaven? Well, heaven in relation to this is also the personal presence of a God our Father. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now let's return to our thoughts for just a minute about God dwelling with us. In John 1.14, it says, Jesus dwelt among us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The literal translation of John 1.14 is really a beautiful emblem. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That actually means... That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, tabernacled with us. A tabernacle is a tent. And so the idea behind this verse is, is what Jesus did when he came is that God pitched his tent among us. God came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now the allusion is to the Old Testament and the tabernacle that Moses built. Uh, he was told to construct this in the wilderness. And the tabernacle was a temporary place of worship. It was actually a tent. 
It was a tent that the children of Israel picked up and moved as they went from place to place. Tabernacle was not a permanent place of worship. Whenever the camp was moved, the tabernacle was put into the center of the camp. All the tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle, and that was a visible representation of God. Now, you can be sure that they were glad that God was with them, but they were also very careful about this because this was a frightening thing. They were very careful not to intrude upon God. They didn't want to get too close to his presence. When God was there, he would show himself in a pillar of cloud in the daytime. At night, he would show himself in a pillar of fire, and that ascended from the place of the Holy of Holies, the main holy place of the, of the tabernacle. And it was a spectacular, supernatural display that God was there. So Israel's enemies could observe this from the mountains that were round, and they would gather upon the mountains, they would look down on Israel as they encamped around the tabernacle, and there they would see that great pillar of smoke that was arising in the daytime. And then if they were there at night, they would see all the valley lit up with the fire of God ascending from that place over the tabernacle. And they had never seen anything like this. None of their gods had ever given a visible representation like this. Jehovah God was in the camp. Now the entire camp, the entire tabernacle, I should say, was sacred. But the most sacred part of it the holiest of all was a place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the high priest would go on one special day of the year. And he approached this heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And he would push that curtain aside and he would enter there, but never without the blood of a sacrifice. And he would go in and he would offer that blood. And inside of that small compartment, there was a brilliant light that was also a manifestation of God's glory. So he never entered without the blood. First he would go in, he would offer for his own sins. And then he would offer for the sins of the people. And that sprinkled blood is what satisfied God as an atonement. Now a very interesting part of that is that the scripture says that all of the tabernacle, the entire structure, and all the furnishings of it, all the vessels of it, the altars that were there, the incense altar that was there, the, the candlestick that was there, the table of showbread that was there, all of this was sacred and untouchable by anyone but priest. This small structure, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, was made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. What a wonderful representation it was because there on this earth was a visual representation, a little taste of heaven that was in the tabernacle. The priest that made the atoning sacrifice is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who is our great high priest. He offered his own blood to satisfy God for our sins. Now let me tell you what that means to you. No Israelite but a priest ever saw the inside of the tabernacle. And among the priests, there was none of them that were able to enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, except the high priest. There was no one who could touch anything in the tabernacle as it was being transported. There were three special families among the Levites that were chosen to transport the articles of the tabernacle, but they never touched them with their bare hands. Everything was covered, and that's because it was all sacred to God. Well, now you're getting a picture of the exclusivity of heaven. 
And that is except for Jesus Christ, there is no one who gets in. You cannot approach it without Jesus. You remember the story of Uzzah? How that Uzzah approached the ark and trying to steady it, he reached out and touched it and like that God struck him dead. He did because it's too holy. You can't touch it. Later, or at another time, I should say earlier, Nadab and Abihu uh, offered strange fire to God, not the kind of worship that God wanted, and God consumed them with fire. You know why? Because God is high and holy. You don't interfere. You don't mess with God. I mentioned Isaiah a moment ago. He had a vision of God on the throne, but you know what Isaiah never did? He never walked up to God. He never shook God's hand and said, I'm so pleased to meet you. I'm so glad that I get to see you. Calvin wrote, the prophet now relates how powerfully he was affected by that vision. Namely, he was so terrified by seeing God that he expected immediate destruction. Job also thought that he was too close to God. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter realized that he was too close to God when he was just in the presence of Jesus. When he was actually in his presence, he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And that's the sense that you get when you see yourself as compared to the holiness of God. You simply cannot get too close to God. Unless you see yourself in this scene of Revelation 21, verse 3. It's only then that you come face to face with God. Only then can you see God and live. Don't ask me to explain what God looks like. No one has ever seen God. No one can explain what God looks like. But in heaven, we shall see God. Then you'll find out what he looks like. For now, though, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't ever make an image of something that you think represents God. Don't ever do that. You've never seen God. You have no right to make representations of God. And let me give you some further advice. He is still God, and you are still you. The difference between you and God is infinite. You will never become God, as some religions teach. You will never become God. You'll never go to heaven and sit on God's lap on His throne. And some people think that too. They think they're going to go into heaven and they'll just walk up to God and they'll sit on His lap and they'll call Him Daddy. They'll go into the throne room and they'll just climb up there and hug on God. No, when you get to heaven, you're still you. He's still God. You will respect Him as God. You'll have deep reverence and respect for Him that will always be reserved throughout the eternity of heaven. You will respect Him, but at the same time, you will feel the warmth of that personal presence of God. You will fall before Him and you will cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Let me give you our last thought for today. Heaven is a prized possession forever. Now this is the fulfillment of a long-time prophecy that's woven throughout the books of the Old Testament. This is a return to the type of communion that Adam had with God. Before Adam's sin, Adam waited for God to come and visit him in the garden. But because of his sin, Adam lost that privilege. I think that Adam could see God. I think that Adam talked with God face to face. He was like angels in heaven now, angels that are perfect, and so they can see God. And I think Adam could see God. 
But he lost that privilege. He sinned against God, and he lost the most blessed privilege that any person could ever have. He lost the ability to see God. So what he lost was just inconceivable. But God did not leave us in that state. He gave us hope of restoration. He gave us hope that there will be a time that we can see Him again, that we can actually come into His presence and talk with Him face to face. He gave us a promise of restoration. Whenever you think about heaven, you think about how Christ has made it possible for us to see God. That promise is made in Genesis 3.15. Just after Adam's sin, God was already preparing for the restoration when we can see God again. So God intends to bring us back into full fellowship. Now, as I said, that's something woven throughout the Old Testament and also in the New. We can start with Abraham, and we can see the promise that God made him. Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. To Moses he said, And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. See if this statement in Ezekiel doesn't sound much like what we read in Revelation. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people." To Zechariah, he said, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And then in the New Testament, Paul wrote, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Heaven is the place where God will be our God, and we shall be his people. How long? You can't put a time limit on it. This is not like when Jesus came to earth the first time. In the first advent, he came to dwell among us, but he stayed just a short time. Then he went away with a promise that he would come back. And so we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that he will come back, and then what happens? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So our home in heaven is a permanent home. No one picks it up. No one moves it. Not like Israel did the tabernacle. The tabernacle in heaven is anchored. It is anchored to the rock that cannot be moved. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. God dwells with us forever. W.A. Criswell wrote, How would a mortal describe the presence of God? And how could he enter into the glory of the great Jehovah? For no man can look upon God's face and live. I hope that I've showed you today how you can look at God's face and live. It's not because of what you do. It's not because in you or in yourself that you are holy. You cannot see God's face and live. Abraham couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Peter, Paul. None of them could see God's face and live. And neither will you unless you come by the only way that God says that you can come. You come by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. 
Now, do you remember what I said just a moment ago when I said that only priest could see what was inside of the tabernacle? And that tabernacle was a little taste of heaven. Only priest could see the inside. Peter has remarkable insight into this to those of us who are the children of God. He said, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness, listen, into his marvelous light. If you're God's child, you are his prized possession. You are a peculiar person. Some, as I've said, are more peculiar than others, but you are a peculiar person. You are a chosen generation, and get this, what does he say? You are a priest. You are a priest. And only priest shall see God. And that's what you are by faith in Christ. Someday you will see God face to face, and he will say to you, you are my child, and I will live with you forever, and I will be your God. Not as an invisible spirit, not in the flesh of incarnation, but in the personal presence of his glorious splendor. If that doesn't make you want heaven, don't come back. Because the physical descriptions that I'll give you later cannot top this. We shall see God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this blessed promise that we have in Scripture. We will be able to see you. What could we have that would be more blessed than that? What personal possession would we want to hold on to that would prevent us from seeing you? What goodness would we want to hold in our heart to think that it would qualify us for heaven and think that we could be in that place where we're going to see you when Jesus said there is no way to come except being pure in heart. Lord, we don't have anything to offer. We have nothing to bring. There's nothing in us that qualifies us to see you. It's only by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and having that blood applied to our heart and having all sin washed from us that we will ever be able to see you. And so we thank you, Lord God, because you sent Jesus into the world to take care of this very problem. How shall we see God? And Jesus came to make it possible. Jesus came in order that we will be able to see you. Lord, we look for that day. We long for it. As your people, we want to see you face to face. Thank you, Lord, for the great promise that you've given. Heaven is real, and that's the place where we're headed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says that Jesus is God. It says that he is the visible manifestation, the expressed image of God. So when we go to heaven, when we see God, it's Jesus that we'll see face to face. He's the manifestation of God. And you won't see him unless you come by faith in him. Can you think about that for just a moment? If heaven is God, Jesus is God, how would you ever be allowed into heaven by rejecting who Jesus is? Why would you ever try to come some other way besides him? It's all futile. It makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all for Christianity to be some kind of inclusive religion. It is exclusive to Jesus Christ. 
you come by Him because He's the one that you're going to see in heaven. You'll never stand before Him and say, Oh, I sought some other way. I tried to get another way. I thought my way was just as good, and it's just as good so I can see you. And Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. You must come by faith in Him. That's what I ask you to do today. Surrender yourself to Christ, to believe in Him. By faith, come to Him. Then you will see God. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.